My organisation, um, when faced with the cut to our Arts Council grant in this financial year, um, made a decision about our regional programme and programmers, and we decided to cut the programme budget in order to keep staff and not make anyone redundant, which is about investing in the expertise. But the way we span it, <laughs> or the way we tried to spin it, was that by having less money, they would um, actually be encouraged to do more interesting things, more risk-taking things, and work in partnership more. Um, and I'm starting to see that actually that's the case. So um, it's, I, I, I agree, we, our knee-jerk reaction was to kind of to do less of the art. Um, but I'm hoping that the outcome of that is not that we're doing less interesting work, but you know, I, it I does remain so to be seen. It <laughs> remains to be seen. And I'm not going to say that, that it's, I'm not saying that spending more in art necessarily makes it better. You'll never hear those words come out of mouth because some of the most interesting projects I've done have been the ones that were the least expensive. But in general, if we think that the mission of our organization is to hold on to staff rather than to make art, I think we, that's not the mission of your, I don't even know your organization, but I have to believe your mission statement is not, we don't want to fire anyone. Um, and so I just think we'd be very careful about that. And I think you brought up a really important point. The reason we do tend to cut programming is not to make anyone redundant. And I think we just have to think that one through. You also alluded very briefly to something that's really crucial, and one of the reasons why I love having the time to make the art, which are joint projects. If you don't have a lot of money right now to make your most interesting year, one of the things I love to think about are joint projects, because they allow you to do something bigger, better, and cheaper. When I got to American Ballet Theatre, and we had done this Romeo and Juliet for seven years, and we had to do something new, I said, I said what's out there? I, I'm not a, a ballet choreographer, so I couldn't create, but some, a wonderful choreographer had come to us with an idea for a full-length ballet based on Shakespeare's Othello with a commissioned score, new sets, new costumes, as big a project as you can imagine in ballet. And everyone, and I said, boy, that sounds really interesting. And but everyone said to me, you're crazy to think about it. You're bankrupt. How could you possibly imagine commissioning this work? But I did, but only for three years out. That gave me the time, A, to find money for it, but B, I found a joint venture partner, the San Francisco Ballet, and they did it with us, and it cut our, cost, cut our costs in half. So now we have this big project to talk about for a couple of years, because you can talk about projects before they happen and get people excited. And the joint venture really allowed us to do it at a much lower cost. So I'm a very big believer in joint ventures, and I find that time is the key requirement for joint ventures because when joint ventures fail, it's almost always because they were rushed and the contract wasn't good enough and all the, all the possible scenarios weren't thought of and people end up unhappy. But there's so many examples of wonderful joint ventures between arts organizations, between arts organizations and educational institutions, um, all different kinds of combinations that allow you to make bigger, more interesting art. And what I did at ABT was my first season wasn't our most interesting, but I could talk about what's coming down the road. And that allowed us to seem like a much more vital organization even when things were bad. I think someone was going to talk up there. Yes? No, did someone have a, oh, I'll go here. Yeah, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on um, sort of risk and loss leaders. And, and what I mean by that is I, I completely 
agree with your your virtuous circle here. Um, I work at Bristol Old Vic, which is the theatre here in um, Bristol, and actually my, myself and my development director had breakfast this morning talking about this very problem, which is that I believe um, we're now in a position where our art is strong, um, moving around. I think our marketing is as strong as it has been in the last few years. Our family is growing. I believe that we have um, a lot of prospects in our vicinity. It's simply a case right now that we don't have the administrative capacity or the, um, I suppose, the specific fundraising experience and skill to, to capitalize on the opportunities. So there seems to be a real challenge about saying, do I um, take a genuine risk and say, let's commit X thousand pounds to the process of administrating what I believe to be the potential of this income? It might be, you know, it, it, and then if I believe it, how do I convince the people I need to sign off on my budget right. <laughs> that this is a this is a, a um, strong and progressive decision for the organisation? If you are really convinced that your art is really strong and continues strong, that your marketing, both programmatic and institutional, is strong, and that you're building your family, and all you need to do is to have the technical expertise to turn that into money, to me, it's a no-brainer, absolutely worthwhile. And there's so many examples in this country where that proved true. I'm not just talking about what happens in the States. I'm talking about what happens around the world. I mean, the Royal Opera House, we raised 60 million pounds in 18 months. Um, we, we created a friends group, a modest level of giving group. We had 26,000 of them by the year 2000, each giving 50 pounds. It's not a lot of money, but 50 times, times 26,000, 1.3 million pounds. It's an awful lot. I think it's... Uh, I think it's uh, it's quite a it's quite a scary proposition for, for boards and for governance in the country. When I think in the last decade, they've been um, especially concerned with protecting the bottom line, and understandably, to then go and say, you uh, know, ten, twenty, five hundred thousand, let's invest in our capacity to fundraise because and I don't the think five hundred thousand needs to be invested <laughs> either. Yeah. But 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 my feeling is, if you don't do it, mm. two things are going to happen. One is you're not going to have the funds you need to keep making art because it's not clear that the sources you're currently getting from are going to stay with you forever, as we can see. And number two, other organizations are going to do it. And so for me, it also becomes a defensive thing. I believe there's so much money out there in every society. One of my favorite stories of my experience was I was teaching a lot in South Africa in the middle 1990s when fundraising was a brand new concept, really. I mean, people here thought I was crazy in 1998. They in the press here, I was always called Michael Kaiser, the crass American. That was my title. But in South Africa, they really thought I was nuts as I talked about fundraising. But I taught arts management, including at University of Witwatersrand. I taught a whole course. And I had two students in my class. Most of the class were people like yourselves, people who were in the field. I had two teenagers. Um, and I went to the head of the program. And I said, why do you have m me teaching teenagers? It doesn't seem to make sense. And she said, just watch them. They're really smart. Just let them learn. And these two kids lived in Soweto, and if you've ever either been to Soweto or seen pictures of Soweto, there's not a lot of poorer places on the earth than Soweto was particularly 15 years ago. And these two children st started fundraising, and they raised enough money to create a dance company called the Soweto Dance Company, which has toured the world. And, and it was really pretty remarkable. And they raised all the initial capital in Soweto. If you can raise money in Soweto, you can raise it in Bristol. <laughs> I really do believe that. But also, it doesn't necessarily take hiring lots of experts to do this. 
Everything I'm going to talk about today to me is common sense. I'm not a very smart man. I've just got common sense. And when I was at the Kansas City Ballet, there were four of us in a room. I was the chief executive and the only marketer and the only fundraiser. So I don't think it all has to take a ton of money to do this, to start. But I think what happens pretty quickly is you realize that doing it pays much more than pays for itself. And, and maybe by the end of the morning, you'll be convinced. Other questions or thoughts about this cycle? Does it make sense to you? what we're talking about here. I really want you to think about it because to me, nothing else we'd say this day is going to be really very important except for how do we create this family that's going to turn into money? Because for me, fundraising is really about a funnel. You know, it's about how many people can we bring into our organization some way and make sure that we're getting some of them to become those who become our donors. Do all of you have means of collecting the email addresses of everyone who comes to your performances, your classes, your, your um, exhibitions? Yes? No? What kind of work do you do? Okay, do you have exhibitions of your art? Mm -hmm. And so people come, and you don't know who comes. Okay, you know that kills me. <laughs> right. um, let me make a suggestion. Do a raffle. Hmm? Just have a continuous raffle. This, I find the best way to collect the names of people who come to your performances, come to your exhibitions, et cetera. The best way to start figuring out who's actually in your family if you don't know who they are. And just either get donated two dinners at a local restaurant or some modest prize or something. Two, two opportunities. You can win opportunity to, to meet the artists privately, whatever it is, just create something. And all people have to do is fill out their, put their email address and stick it in a box. And you'll get a large proportion of your people to do that. And now you have, an, now you have a base of knowledge, all right? Will you think about trying that? We work on that. Okay, good. Others of you, you all, you all know how to get your, your, your people, right? All right. I don't quite believe all of you, <laughs> but I'm going to, yes. Hi, um, I work for a, a Lyft, which is a festival, so we present in lots of other people's venues. We don't have a venue right. ourselves, and it's really hard to get that data. Absolutely. The venue um, won't give it to you, most no. likely. That's and why, but do a, you can do a raffle. Okay. Try it, seriously. <laughs> but some of the venues wouldn't let us do that. Okay. Um, if they won't, they won't. But. I find that or what you mm. can do is put in your pro do you have a program book or some kind yeah. of handout? Yeah, although some of the venues won't even let you do that. Let us do that. So <laughs> maybe we won't present in those venues. <laughs> yeah. but no, you know, <laughs> you take what you get, but, yeah. but, but there's a lot of opportunities to communicate that you, you want to know who your audience is yeah. to people. And I would really suggest that you try and think of ways as many as possible. If you're doing performances and you're not capturing the names, if you're doing exhibitions and not capturing the names, you're not, you don't really have a family if you don't know they exist. Yeah. I'm just wondering, does it matter if most of the people in your family don't have very much money? No. The, big, the biggest donors to arts organizations are not the super rich. They're average, everyday people. I mentioned the 26,000 friends of Covent Garden. Of those, the vast majority were school teachers, nurses, bus drivers, not the super rich. But what if they're well below average, so not the teachers, mm -hmm. you know, the, 
the most vulnerable people in society who really don't have very much money? Then you can either, do, you can do one of two things. One is you can still ask, and believe me, you'll be surprised, because I work with some extremely, some organizations that serve extremely poor communities in the States. One wonderful Latino theater that serves the South Bronx, which is a very poor neighborhood, and didn't believe they could ever raise a penny from anybody around them. And I said, just try it, just try it. And we had a fight literally for seven years because um, the woman who ran it was part of a program I taught, and I still do, every year for organizations of color in the States. And she just wouldn't do it and wouldn't do it. She finally tried it. In her first year, she raised $70,000 from her community. So one thing is to try and to see. And the other is not everyone who supports your organization has to be someone you serve with your art. There'll be people, foundations, and individuals, and corporations who value what you do for your community as long as they can get back from it what it is they're looking for. Many, many of the people, I run ballet companies much of my career, and there are a lot of people who supported my work who don't really love ballet, but they loved other things that we do, the educational work that we do, et cetera, or the role that we played in the, in the community. So it doesn't, you're not precluded from doing private fundraising if you serve primarily poor people. But you have to figure out a way, a different way than your art, to get people interested in the organization then your marketing is more challenging. Because if someone loves the work you do and participates, they are a natural target. If you're going to someone outside of that group, then you have to find a, you, then you have to do better institutional marketing that really communicates your excitement to your organization, to, to your community. What kind of work do you do? I work for a community theater company. Mm -hmm. So we work with the more vulnerable people to give them an opportunity to participate and create their own plays. Fantastic. And, and how do you create institutional identity for it? What's your institutional marketing plan? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. But I would love for you to start yeah. thinking about an Good institutional question. marketing plan. I believe that small organizations three or four times a year have to do something that get people talking. And large organizations 10 or 12 times a year have to do something that gets people talking. Let me give you just one idea. It might make sense to you, it might not. I ran a little museum in New York called the Morgan Library. It's a beautiful jewel-like museum. Um, but it was, um, its art is mostly 400 years old or older. <laughs> so it was, a, it, was a, it was focused on manuscripts and on drawings, um, beautiful, beautiful things. And every time we had a temporary exhibition, we would do a slide lecture at lunchtime where people could come for free and watch the slides and listen to um, a narration. And the narration was always provided by the curator of that exhibition. And while these curators were brilliant people, they weren't the most melodious of voices. And so the, the slide lectures were a little droney and a little boring and a little dry. And they would go like this. And as a result, no one wanted to come to the slide lectures. We typically would have seven people, of, of whom six were homeless people looking for a place to be. <laughs> and one actually cared about the subject. So it came to be that we were doing an exhibition about Beatrix Potter with her drawings and her, and her stories, et cetera. And it was a beautiful exhibition. A lot of the material obviously came from England. And um, the curator was English and was not one of our curators. And I went to her and I said, would you mind, bless you, would you mind if we, di if we didn't use your voice for the slide lecture? We still want you to write it, but would you mind if we had someone outside do this? And she didn't care. She didn't care if she read this, it or not. And so she said, fine. So I said, okay, who in my mind sounds like Beatrix Potter? <laughs> now, I've never heard her voice, none of us have. Um, but I said, who might sound like 
Beatrix Potter. So I decided Julie Andrews <laughs> would sound like Beatrix Potter. I didn't know Julie Andrews. I had never met her. Um, she had never been to our organization as far as I know. I wrote her a letter. Dear Miss Andrews, you know, I'm at the Morgan Library. We're doing this exhibition. I was wondering if you would mind narrating our slide lecture. <laughs> and she wrote back saying, because I found that celebrities tend to be very generous with time but not with money. She said, if you pay for the cassette tape and the stamped envelope, I will read the slide lecture. <laughs> this, is how this is a while ago. We still use cassette tapes then. So we spent 89 cents for the tape, and we sent her the script and the self-addressed envelope, and the next week, beautifully narrated, was our slide lecture, which, A, we used for the slide lecture. She also let us use little excerpts for our radio ads. And it became the largest attendance at an exhibition in the history of the Morgan Library, and every slide lecture was completely filled. There's ways to use people to add an element of interest and excitement to your work that draws people who may not come and do your work but can learn about your work. Yeah, thank you. That's good advice. Mm -hmm. Try it. Yeah. Give yourself some time. Don't try it for next week. Try it for two years from now.